Great worship. Luke chapter 13 tonight, as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke on Tuesday nights. And just a reminder, first of all, just a great encouragement for as many of you to be out less than three weeks till Christmas. Thank you. Um, I said we want to finish strong this year. We've only got two more Tuesday nights to go, the 11th and the 18th. And I really want us to finish strong this year and then begin next year on January the 22nd. So please remember that. If you know of anybody that normally comes on Tuesday nights, please let them know that December the 18th will be the last Tuesday we meet until January the 22nd. Um, And then we'll pick it right back up in the Gospel of Luke. Tonight I want to dive into... What I put there in the notes is the theology of tragedy. I want to read the first five verses, and then we'll share some thoughts. Now, there were some present on that occasion who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. He answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Jesus shares this on the heels of someone saying, Hey, Lord, I can interpret the times. Because remember, the very last thing that Jesus talked about in chapter 12 we looked at last week was, you can't interpret the times that you're living in. And so someone, you know, in the crowd, Luke doesn't identify who it is, says, well, I can interpret the times. I mean, look at what happened when these Galileans went up to sacrifice and Pilate sent a a band of soldiers in there and literally murdered them and the blood of these uh, people who were there to sacrifice to the Lord, their blood was literally mingled with the blood of sacrifice. How awful that was. And so it's almost like, I understand the times that, that we are living in. And Jesus takes this opportunity not to necessarily explain why did God allow that to happen, or why God allowed this tower to fall on 18 people in Siloam and kill them. What the Bible does tell us in other places is this. Tragedy is the result of living in a fallen world. We live in a world where God allows men and women to have a free will, and to have choice. And we like the fact that God did not make us robots and does not force us, even as Christians, to obey. We can choose to disobey and to do our own thing. But when we live in a world where people can use their free choice to hurt others, including us, That's when we have a problem with it. The problem with that is we can't have it both ways. We are going to live in a world that is fallen. 
We live in a world where we're either an unforgiven sinner or a forgiven sinner. And because of that, much of the hurt and pain and suffering that human beings will go through on earth is because we are on the other end of somebody else's bad choice that they make. But there's other times where there's natural disasters that happen. And the Bible tells us that is also just a result of living in a fallen world. The earth is under the curse. And therefore, creation itself, Paul says in the book of Romans, is always groaning, seeking to be released from the bondage that it is in. And so Jesus doesn't take time to necessarily explain why these things happen. What he does take the opportunity to do is to remind us here that tragedies are also a wake-up call to the finiteness and fragileness of life. None of us knows, as we talked about in James, what the next day will hold. Our life is a vapor. And life is very fragile and finite. And our lives could end tragically or by accident or by disaster or at the hands of someone else's bad choice at any time. And Jesus doesn't take, again, a lot of time to go beyond that except to go back and use this time to say, so are you ready for that time? Are you ready? Have you made peace with God? Are you ready to face death? Are you ready to go into eternity? Because eternity literally could come upon us at any time. This is why Jesus in this passage, in these first five verses, does say this. Tragedy should be an opportunity for evaluating ourselves rather than judging others. For you see in this passage a couple different times where in verse 2 he says, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? Or do you think in verse 4 that the people that the tower fell on were worse offenders? Because in Jesus' day, especially with Jews, when something terrible like these people who went up to the temple to sacrifice to the Lord were murdered by, by Pilate's soldiers were killed, they would automatically go to this place. Well, there must have been something wrong in their life. That's why that happened. And the same thing with the tower falling on the 18 and killing them. Automatically, the people in Jesus' day would have said, well, they must have done something really bad, and that's God getting them back. And Jesus is saying in this passage, no. Now, he's not saying that there isn't, at times, suffering brought on by our own sin. Absolutely. But Jesus here is, is really making it clear that not all tragedy and not all suffering and not all pain that we go through is because of something we did or that somehow God is punishing us in some way. It's the result of living in a fallen world with fallen people and a sin-cursed earth. And therefore, Jesus saying, instead of focusing on others when that happens, 
He said, use these tragedies that take people's lives to look at yourself and say, if that would have happened to me, would I be ready to meet Jesus? That's why he says twice in this passage, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And the word perish there that he's using is to experience the second death, eternal death, not just physical death. You see, for us as Christians, every time we hear in the news that some tragedy or some accident has taken people's lives and they have went from living on this earth and in a split second they are flung out into eternity, it should remind us of the finiteness and fragileness of life and it should remind us about evaluating our own lives and making sure we are ready for that moment if it were to happen to us. If we were in that car, if we were on that plane, if we were anywhere that something has happened to take someone's life, Jesus is saying, make sure that you're using these things that happen in a fallen world to make sure that you're staying on track and you're where you need to be so that if it happens to you, you're ready to meet Jesus. Which is why then in verses 6 through 9, Jesus talks about the fig tree. Jesus told them this parable that a man went and had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, came looking for fruit on it. Because that's what's supposed to be there. God expects to see fruit. So he said to the worker who tended the vineyard, for three years now I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and each time I inspect it, I find none. Cut it down. Why should I continue to deplete the soil? But the worker answered him, Sir, leave it alone this year too until I dig around it and put fertilizer on it. Then if it bears fruit next year, very well, but if not, you can cut it down. And I think Jesus is just simply relaying too in this parable how patient God is. To see fruit. And I think in the context here, as I put in the notes, that tragedy should bear fruit in our lives if we're learning from the experiences and things that we go through and the things that we see others go through. There should be fruit from all of life's experiences. Whether other people are experiencing them or we are experiencing them, God expects to see fruit from it. That's why even when we do fall and we do sin and we do make mistakes, which we're all going to do, God expects us to learn from our mistakes and to try to, with His help and His wisdom, get to a place where we figure out how not to let that same mistake keep happening over and over again. That's the kind of fruit And productivity God wants to see in our lives. It's never about perfection. But it is about progress. It is about fruitfulness. And let's remember too, that we can't bear fruit on our own. We can't produce fruit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit that God produces through us. 
And we need to learn to allow the things that happen to others around us and even the things that happen to us and that we go through. Instead of focusing on necessarily why it happened, and we all ask those questions. And especially instead of judging others when something bad happens to them as if, well, they must have deserved it. God expects us to look at ourselves and go, what if that was me? What if my life was taken? Would I be ready? Am I in a good place with my God? Am I ready to meet Jesus? This is the theology of tragedy that Jesus lays down for us here in the first nine verses of Luke 13. Then we get to the second part in verse 10, where you see a great contrast between religion and the reality that is Jesus Christ. Follow along with me. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten herself up completely. When Jesus saw her, he called her her to him and said, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity. Then he placed his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. But the president of the synagogue, the grand poobah, as I like to call him, immediately indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the crowd, There are six days on on which work should be done, so come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from his stall, lead it to water? Then shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen long years, be released from this imprisonment on the Sabbath day? And when he had said all this, his adversaries were humiliated, but the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. Get the picture here. We don't know how old this woman was, but Luke, the doctor, gives us a very detailed description of this woman. For 18 years, every week, she went up to worship the Lord. And, And this demonic spirit, according to Jesus, had so got this woman's body in such a a mess that, that she couldn't even straighten up. She, in fact, probably she was So bad that when she talked to people, she couldn't even look at them as she was talking to them. And weekly, the president of the synagogue, as well as everybody else, will say, in the church, saw that woman walk in and probably take her same place for 18 years. And because she was a woman, too, she would have been sitting on the other side of the men, and she would have probably been sitting all the way in the back. And for 18 years, pretty much, probably nobody else paid too much attention to that woman. In fact, they probably maybe even avoided her until the Sabbath day that Jesus shows up. He noticed her. And so notice here a couple things that I saw in this passage. First of all, religion is bondage. The reality that is Christ is freedom. 
It's very clear in this passage that Jesus makes it a point that this woman was in bondage for 18 years with this terrible, debilitating spirit that had literally crippled her body to where she couldn't even stand up straight. And she was faithful. She went every week. But it didn't make her free. It was only when she encountered Jesus Christ and His power was freedom really obtained. That's the way it is. People can be religious. They can be faithful to their houses of worship. But until they have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, they will stay in bondage. Because only Jesus Christ can set a person free. And as Jesus himself said, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Too many people today are still in bondage. Not because they're not religious. Not because they're not faithful to their houses of worship. Not because they're not trying to do any, everything externally and outwardly as they should. But because they've never personally either trusted in Christ or are believing in Christ and in His power and what He can do in their lives. And until we do that, we are in bondage. Second, you see in this passage that religion is indifferent where reality of Jesus is compassion. The president of the synagogue and everyone else was sort of indifferent to this woman and what she was going through. And they certainly couldn't offer to help her after 18 years. They couldn't do anything for her. But as soon as the Bible says, as Jesus saw her, he called her to himself. He noticed her. This reminds us that this is the reality of Christ. He's a compassionate God. He sees what we're going through. He feels our pain. He enters into the things that we are going through. He does take notice. He's never indifferent. Read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where it reminds us that Jesus, our great high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. We also see in this passage that religion is angry. Reality of Jesus is joy. Because notice, verse 14, the president of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed this woman. Are you kidding me? A woman who's been in this state under the influence of this demonic spirit for 18 years and Jesus heals her and they're not up having a revival and praising God. No, they're mad about it. Because it didn't fit within their little box. There was no joy in their lives. And you and I know that to be true even in our own lives before we came to know the joy of the Lord. And we see it in other people's lives who can be very religious. Dot all their I's, cross all their T's. You know, make sure that they're following all the rules. But there's no joy there. Because joy comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
and spending time with Him. Notice also the hypocrisy of religion where the reality of Christ is genuine. I love this. The guy, the president of the synagogue, he's mad. He's really mad at Jesus, right? He's not really mad at anybody else. He's mad at Jesus for healing this woman. But notice what he does. Instead of going to Jesus and dealing with Jesus, notice what the Bible says. The president of the synagogue said to the crowd in verse 14, there are six days on which, you know, work should be done. So come and be healed on those days. Like he could do anything about it on the other six days. Like he did anything about it on the other six days. What hypocrisy. He could care less. And Jesus pointed that out. You, you're, you're so hypocritical because you, you take even your man-made rules and regulations and you apply them to yourself as it suits you. Which is why he goes on to say, on the Sabbath, you untie your ox or your donkey and you lead it to water, don't you? You you take care of your animals. Why can't this daughter of Abraham be healed on the Sabbath? Again, a total misunderstanding of why God gave mankind the Sabbath. It was just a day of rest. It was supposed to be to help them, not to hinder them. It was supposed to make them more powerful, not to hinder the power of God through them. When Jesus is in our life and he's operating, there's a genuineness and a sincerity to it all. And then I think you see in this passage, too, that religion glorifies men where reality glorifies Christ. The reason the president of the synagogue and all the religious leaders were always upset at Jesus is because Jesus was taking the limelight and the attention and the focus away from them. And then finally, I put down there, religion is rules and reality is a relationship. And you see these principles and these truths weaved through this unbelievable passage where Jesus heals this woman. Then verses 18 through 21. The ultimate triumph of Jesus over all is what I put. And I didn't put a lot of other things because it's pretty self-explanatory. Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? To what should I compare it? It's like a mustard seed. Now, why is Jesus sharing these parables of the mustard seed and of the woman who mixes uh, the yeast in with flour? How does that compare to the kingdom of God? Well, at this point, we see... There's growing rejection with Jesus. There are more and more people. There's a groundswell of opposition now to Jesus. And let's not forget that some of the people, especially those initial people that started to follow Jesus, they had left everything to follow him. They left their jobs. They left their families. They put everything on the line for Jesus. And now, throughout his ministry, though it started out where everyone was happy and and crowds and everything was going good, now as he gets closer to Jerusalem and closer to his crucifixion, there is more and more rejection of Jesus and more and more opposition. And Jesus here is assuring and, and trying to build confidence and build assurance into his followers to hang in there. Because even though it may look like The kingdom of God is not going to win. 
Even though in a couple days when the Son of God is hanging on the cross and it looks like evil has won and Satan has triumphed, he says, no, the kingdom of God is first of all like a mustard seed. A seed! Just this little tiny seed. But this little tiny seed eventually produces a shrub that can grow to be 10 to 12 feet tall that birds can even nest in. And so he says, look, I know it doesn't look good now. I know it looks like we're losing. I know it looks like evil is triumphing. But God wins in the end. And those of us who follow God, we win in the end. What God does starts out as a seed. But it can grow and grow and grow. And God is the one that's going to have the last word, not man. Which is why then he says in verse 20, To what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all the dough had risen. It doesn't start out, again, as something great, but eventually that yeast permeates and penetrates everything, everywhere. In that dough. And Jesus is saying, one day, as the book of Revelation prophesies, John, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So Jesus here is saying, look, I know there's rejection. I know there's opposition. I know I'm not the most popular guy right now in Palestine. And it's only going to get worse, fellas and gals. But I will triumph over all one day. And we need to be reminded of that as well. Because in the days in which we live, as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, the world is not going to get better. And we can begin to get discouraged. And we can even begin to get caught up in what's going on in the world and the influence that Satan is having in the world, and the darkness that is, that is enveloping the world, and we can begin to think even to ourselves, God's not, is God really going to win in the end? And Jesus is saying, yeah, no problem. I got this. It's under control. As we talked about Sunday in the book of Hebrews, one day Jesus Christ is going to figuratively, figuratively stand on the necks of all of his enemies. And all the enemies of Jesus Christ will be placed under his feet. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The narrow door, verse 22 through 30. Jesus traveled throughout towns and villages teaching and making his way toward Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? And he said to them, exert every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and start to knock on the door and beg him, Lord, let us in. But he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. 
There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Then people will come from east and west and from north and south and take their places at the banquet table in the kingdom of God. But indeed, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So much in here, but I I pulled four things out. First of all, Jesus here is not teaching works salvation when he says strive or exert every effort to enter through the narrow door. He's simply saying that to enter the narrow door, which is really him, the way of salvation, the way of life, it requires intentionality. As he says back in the Gospel of Matthew, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go that way. The narrow door that leads to life, few find it. Because in this world in which we live, we have to intentionally get off, in a sense, get out of the flow that the world is going and intentionally, personally, go through the door of salvation, which is only Jesus Christ. You see that we we live in a world today where many people say, you know, eventually everyone's going to go to heaven. Uh, all religions and all faiths eventually lead to the same place. Uh, if a person is sincere in their heart, uh, it doesn't really matter what they believe, they'll end up there. You see, all these different doctrines and philosophies and false teachings, they all lead to the same place. And Jesus is saying, unless one intentionally, deliberately accepts me as their Savior... They're lost. Because even though the invitation is brought, he says later on, east, west, north, south, listen, God's invitation is worldwide. God so loved the world. God's invitation is absolutely broad. God's will is that all people would get saved. But only those who intentionally and deliberately come through the narrow door, which is Jesus Christ alone, will be saved. And that's why it's narrow. Because if I don't do anything, then I just get swept up in the wide way that leads to eternal death and destruction. Because I'm just going the way everybody else is going. I've got to make that personal, deliberate, intentional choice to get off of the way that everybody else is going and thinking and literally place my life in the hands of Jesus Christ. And it requires faith. I have to believe and trust that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. That there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. That if we will confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It also requires urgency. Because you'll notice there Jesus makes the point that There does come a too late. And I think even tying into the context earlier on of tragedy and disaster and the finiteness and fragileness of life, Jesus saying, you don't get a second chance after you die. That's not biblical. According to the Word of God, men and women get plenty of chances down here that they reject. 
They turn the working of the Holy Spirit off in their heart. Things that we don't even see. It requires urgency. There is a too late. And then they want to come in. And Jesus even says, the reason I want is I don't know you. See, where is it here? If I can find it real quick. Oh, verse 26. They will say, well, but we ate and drank in your presence as if just being somewhere makes somebody different. Let me illustrate that. If I go downtown and I hang around for a year outside where the Diamondbacks play baseball, that doesn't make me a baseball player. Just because I'm there. Any more than people who hang out at church makes them a Christian. Just because people do religious things doesn't make them a Christian. That has nothing to do with it. Again, there has to be intentionality and, and something deliberate. We're going to talk more about that Sunday in the message. Spiritual growth doesn't happen by accident. Salvation doesn't happen by accident. And that's why Jesus says, this requires urgency. That's why the writer of Hebrews later on says, today is the day of your salvation. If the Holy Spirit's working on your heart, then accept Christ now. Because if you put it off, maybe you won't even be in that place later on where your heart is soft enough and tender enough to turn to the Lord. And then it requires humility to go through the narrow door. Which is why Jesus says in verse 30, Indeed, some are last who will be first. Some who are first who will be last. And remember, too, he's talking primarily here, too, to Jews who think that they're going to go into the kingdom of God just by association. We are Abraham's descendants. Surely, if anybody's going to get into the kingdom, it's going to be Jews, right? And Jesus is challenging that. He's saying, just because you have an association with me, just because maybe our ancestral lines cross somewhere, doesn't mean you get into the kingdom of God and can feast at the banquet. You've got to intentionally, deliberately, and personally accept by faith what God is doing in your life. And I'm here. I'm the kingdom of God. Accept me. I'm your Messiah. Reject me at your own peril. That required humility, especially for a Jew. Who never thought that they had to do anything other than just be a Jew. And they'd get there. And then we see finally in verses 31 through 35, Jesus going to Jerusalem. In fact, we've seen this already throughout the Gospel of Luke. Luke continues to repeat this. In fact, if you look back up at verse 22, when it says he traveled through towns and villages teaching and making his way toward Jerusalem. You will see that phrase throughout the Gospel of Luke because after a while, that's where Jesus was focused. Here's where I need to get to. I need to get to Jerusalem because that's where my work will be completed. I came to die. That's why I put there in the notes, Christ's fearless commitment to the will of God when he went to Jerusalem. Because notice verse 31, at that same time, some Pharisees came up and said to Jesus, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox. I love that. Look, I am casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Wow, Jesus is basically saying to Herod, you can't stop me until 
I'm ready to be stopped. It's a reminder here that no one took Jesus' life from him. He gave his life. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day because it is impossible that a prophet should be killed outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Look, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of of the Lord. Three things there as we close this out tonight. First of all, again, you see Christ's fearless commitment to the will of God. He's laying down an example for us to keep our eyes focused on the goal, on where God wants us to go and not allow the detractors and the distractions of life and the opposition and the rejection and all of that to deter us from staying where God wants us to go. Secondly, We see in this passage the love of Jesus, his ultimate desire for mankind. We can't even imagine the emotion that Jesus would have had standing outside of Jerusalem, weeping, saying how often I wanted to gather you to myself. I wanted to bring you near. I I wanted to see you come to me just like that woman who had that, that spirit for 18 years. She came to me. I want to just gather you up like a hen gathers her chicks. But you rejected me over and over and over again. Christ's ultimate desire is to bring people to himself. And even for us as Christians, Christ's desire is not for us to stay at a distance, but he wants us to get near him, to come under his wings, if you will. And then we see here at the end, God's plan will not be thwarted. When Jesus says in verse 35, your house is forsaken, there's a couple different things here, but the one I want to point out is this. Because Israel as a nation rejected Jesus as their their Messiah, in just a few years, in 70 AD, the Roman emperor Titus would roll into Jerusalem and basically level Jerusalem. And from 70 AD... Until 1948, Jews were scattered all over the world. Only after, from 70 AD to 1948, did finally the Jewish people get a homeland again. That shows the consequences when we refuse the invitation and offer of Jesus Christ. The price that we pay. For us as Christians... All we have to do is look at the history of the Jewish people to see the price it is paid for rejecting Jesus Christ. But I want to leave you with this. I came across this several years ago and I wanted to share it with you tonight. There was an article in National Geographic several years ago providing a penetrating picture of God's wings. After a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park, forest rangers began their trek up a mountain to assess the inferno's damage. One ranger found a bird literally petrified in ashes, perched statuesquely on the ground at the base of a tree. Somewhat sickened by the eerie sight, he knocked over the bird with a stick. 
When he struck it, three tiny chicks scurried from underneath their dead mother's wings. The loving mother, keenly aware of impending disaster, had carried her offspring to the base of the tree and had gathered them under her wings, instinctively knowing that the toxic smoke would rise. She could have flown to safety, but had refused to abandon her babies. When the blaze had arrived and the heat had singed her small body, the mother had remained steadfast. She had been willing to die so that those under the cover of her wings would live. Folks, Jesus is trying to say in this passage, you can trust my love. Let me cover you. Let me cover you. I don't know what each of you are going through right now in your life. But here's what I do know. That if we will allow Jesus Christ to draw us close to Him and place us under His wings, it doesn't matter what's coming against us or what we're going through. Because He's greater and more powerful and more sufficient than anything else. And we will be able to make it through under His wings. Just like Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace who came out unsinged because Jesus was in the fire with them. He never prevented them from going in the fire. He saved them through the fire. And that's what God does in our lives most of the time. Most of the time, He won't prevent us from going through the fire, but wants to show Himself to us as He saves us through it, just like this mother bird did her own babies. Let God and His love cover you right now. Let's pray. God, we thank You for your unbelievable, unconditional love. A love that desires us to come under your wings. To come under your power and as near and as close as we possibly can get. So that no matter what happens, no matter what is happening, if there's fire raging all around us in our lives, you can protect us under your wings. But God, so often, we try to go through the fires of life on our own. We try to push you away or think that we can handle it. And we get burned every time. God, help us to trust your love. Help us to come to you and allow you to cover us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. We'll see you on Sunday.